Please take a seat. As we prepare our hearts to communion, to take communion, I want to come straight to the reading and then we'll set the context for this reading. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 20 and I'm going to read from verse 20 down to verse 28. Matthew 20 from verse 20 down to verse 28 and if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 988. So I'll read it for us. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is a final uh, message in a series, Desiring God. And we've been looking at some of the so-called spiritual disciplines. We've been reimagining them in a busy world. What does it look like to be, as a disciple of Jesus, involved in spiritual disciplines in an incredibly busy world? Because the more tech we get, and the more gear we get, and the more gadgets we get, and the more facilities we have... It doesn't seem to make life any easier. Life is just as busy, if not more busy, than ever. And we've been trying to reimagine how to draw close to God through these spiritual disciplines in a busy world. And tonight we come to service. We come to service. And this spiritual discipline of service is just that. But it seems a kind of almost counterintuitive one. Let's remind ourselves a little bit about where we've been First of all, and we've been drawing on a book by Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline. And there's a link between disciple and discipline. Those things we do as we follow our rabbi, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ. It's, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's our master, he's our Lord, he's our saviour. We exercise disciplines as disciples. And the inward disciplines, the inward disciplines so-called, about how we relate to our Heavenly Father through Jesus, these inward disciplines include meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. And we've looked at all of those. What we haven't looked at in any detail, because we were concentrating on us as individual disciples getting close to God in a busy world, are what are called, according to Foster, the corporate disciplines. Confession. Telling God you know you've got stuff wrong and turning away from it, repenting of it, saying sorry for it. Worship guidance, how we know what God wants for our lives, and celebration. We've not covered those in great detail. Perhaps we'll come back another time. But what we've been on to more recently are what we call the outward disciplines. Inward about how we change our heart and how we allow God 
through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us the men and the women He wants us to be. Corporate disciplines, what happens when we get together to worship and celebrate what we do together as a family. But the outward disciplines are those that are kind of come out from our lives and make a difference in the world and in our relationships. And so we've looked at simplicity, we've looked at solitude. We haven't looked at submission, but tonight, our final message, we're looking at service. We're looking at service, the very last one. And in this uh, teaching that we've got here before us, Jesus simply taught this, Matthew 20, 26 to 27, in the New International Version, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Let's look at it in Luke's account. If you've got a Bible, just go to Luke chapter 9 with me. This is a parallel account. It's also in Mark's Gospel. And in Luke, reading from chapter 9, verses 46 to 48, we get a slightly different insight. Let me uh, read it for us. Luke 9 from verse 46. An argument started among the disciples. So we don't get that, an argument. We get that they're indignant in uh, Matthew's reading. But here we see an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. That's what this is all about, really. I'm going to be greater than you. No, I want the seat on Jesus' right. I want the seat on Jesus' left. An argument. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child... And had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you all, he is the greatest. So whether this is repeated teaching or not, it throws an insight, it throws light onto what we've read from Matthew. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is with you. So he's teaching them to be servants. He's saying, whoever's not against you is with you, but don't go looking for status and position. Be a servant. Paul captures it this way in that great uh, hymn to Jesus Christ. It's either poetry or a hymn in Philippians 2. And verse 3, when Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That verse will appear behind me and I'll read it again. Paul taught this, Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Before we go any further, a key word here is humility. Now one of the things we're looking at doing this year in the church is gaining five core values for Mutley Baptist Church. We'll be doing a lot at our next members meeting and a lot at the members meeting following that. Everyone who's a member of the church will get a letter. Anyone who wants one will get a little paper tool to work out prayerfully what you think our five core values could be. We're going to call them the big five. And I am hoping and praying, I don't know what I'll do if everyone says no, this isn't one of them, but I'm hoping and praying that humility will be one of them. This is a great church. It's got a great history. It remains to be seen whether its future is as fruitful and as effective as its past. 
But trust me, I'm going to give everything I can, and I know that the faithful people of this church are going to give everything they can to honour and glorify God. And he may do some amazing things amongst us. Somebody told me that as they've been praying, they heard of the sense of the word avalanche just tonight at the beginning of the service. And I think they meant it in a very positive way, that almost unpredictably something momentous is going to happen we need to be people of humility we need to be people of humility the world doesn't need any more arrogant people Richard Foster who wrote this book Celebration of Discipline and if you want to write it down you'll see it behind me said this as the cross is the sign of submission so the towel is the sign of service I love that as the cross is the sign of submission, so the towel is the sign of service. Jesus, and we're going to read the story now, at least part of it, he took up the towel. So remember what we read from Philippians. Let's just go back there for a moment to refresh our memories. Because I want Jesus to be the supreme example because he always is the supreme example of how we should live. And in this beautiful hymn or poem, in Philippians 2, in verses 4 to 8, we'll read it again. This is what Paul teaches in the light of the way Christ has been. He says, let me go from verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude, my attitude, our attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, there's the word, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, there's that word, humility, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Gethsemane, Jesus, in his humanity, didn't want to be brutalized, beaten, whipped, flogged, punched, spat upon. He didn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath. But in Gethsemane, Jesus said, if there's any way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, Father. And then he prayed, yet not my will, but your will be done. And Graham Kendrick, who's still around and still writing hymns and songs, wrote a, um, a hymn a, a number of decades ago now called The Servant King. And he wrote another, another hymn, Meekness and Majesty, about the, the fact that in Jesus Christ there is manhood and deity. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity. And in the, the hymn he wrote, a different hymn, The Servant King, he describes Jesus as the one who came from heaven, as the one who is in very nature God, but takes the form of a servant and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. He draws from the powerful images here. But Jesus himself demonstrates it to his disciples. Go with me, if you've still got a Bible in front of you, to John chapter 13. And in John chapter 13, from verses 12 to 17, we read just part of the story in John's Gospel of Jesus, washing his disciples' feet. Now, this is a rabbi. The disciples would serve their rabbis. What Jesus is doing is completely radical here. 
He takes the form of the lowliest bondservant and washes the dirt from between their toes as they're preparing themselves, we presume, for the Last Supper. Let's listen to the teaching from John 13, verse 12 to 17. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. It's a discipline if you do them. I was so impressed when an Archbishop of Canterbury insisted that as his enthronement, and that's the language that is used in the Church of England, with all the pomp and all the ceremony, he insisted that he washed people's feet as part of that. That's awesome, isn't it? I have upstairs in my study 12 grey plastic washing up bolts. Bought them, I think, at, uh, at Wilco's, bargain price. And I have a number of tea towels. And sometimes when I go and do a retreat for leaders, I get them to fill the 12 washing up bowls full of water and I lay a towel by them. And you should see men and women go into paroxysms of fear. They're thinking, oh no, he's going to get us to wash each other's feet. You can almost see, because some people have a thing about feet. Anyone here got a thing about feet? Ugh. Some of you have, you see, yeah, you've got a thing about feet. Or some people think, oh no, my feet are smelly, I haven't had a shower. You know, they just hate the thought of it. It's, it's a, a humbling thing. And yet the creator of the universe, Jesus, washed his disciples' feet. And when I've done that on leaders' days, they are, the people that are gathered are so relieved when they find out they're only going to have to wash each other's hands... But you try it in your small groups to actually allow someone, the temptation to do it yourself is enormous, to actually surrender and submit to someone washing your hands. How much more was it difficult for Peter who didn't want the Lord to do that for him? But Jesus is setting this remarkable example. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them, if you do them as a discipline. So, just one more verse from Mark's Gospel. Again, third and parallel account. In Mark 10 and verse 45, it is written simply like this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate act of service is going to be represented at this table, the communion table, the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, in a little while. So now from John's Gospel, from Matthew's Gospel, our main reading from Luke's Gospel and from Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus clearly in different contexts, in different ways, teaching the same thing. So where were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and their mother on understanding this? Where were they back in our main reading? I mean, I want to say that they didn't really get it, did they? They really hadn't quite grasped it. Now, let, let's just check that out. Let's go back to Matthew twenty twenty, And we see that Jesus takes this opportunity 
to be very clear with a mother and two sons. In Matthew 20 and verse 20, we read it's the mother of Zebedee's sons who came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, she asks him the favor. I want my boys, Jewish matriarchal figure. Give my boys the best seats, Lord Jesus. She's ambitious for her boys. When we go back to Mark's gospel, we find that what Mark records here is that it's the guys themselves. Listen to verse 35 of Mark 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Mother's not mentioned here. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So clearly, mum and the boys had had a chat, hadn't they? There's no contradiction in the scripture. They're just different eyewitness accounts of the same thing. Matthew says that the mother goes with the boys. Mark puts it that the boys do the asking. There's no contradiction. We've got a brief reporting of this, but clearly James and John didn't kind of get it. So what we need to do is we need to imagine the story. Try and imagine the story as we go back to our main text. And as we look at this story of these sons and this mother coming, try and imagine yourself right in that story. And the first thing we do is look at the question that they ask. So let's go back to Matthew 20 and look at verse 21. The question is this. Jesus says, what is it you want? And she says here, and it's the boys in Mark's gospel, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left. In Mark's gospel, it's the boys. But it's the same question. Can we sit on the key thrones? We know that you in your kingdom will have the main throne, but we want to be your right hand and left hand guys. Now, I want to ask us a question. The question is this, does Jesus, in the light of this, challenge their ambitions, their aspirations, or does he challenge their attitude? That's the question to hold at the back of our mind. He challenges them straight away, verse 22, the very next verse, he says, you don't know what you're asking, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? The great prophet Isaiah had had told of a suffering servant who would drink the cup of God's suffering. He'd drain to the dregs a cup of God's wrath. All God's anger at the wickedness and the evil and the, uh, the demonic activities in worship of, of people. There's wrath in the heart of a loving God. When God sees little children dying because of bombs and conflict and experiencing all kinds of horrible things. He says it'd be better for someone to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown in the deepest ocean. God is a God of love, but he's a God of wrath. And this cup of God's wrath is what Jesus is speaking about here in the challenge. Can you pay the cost, he's saying. And they say they can. And by the way, they did. All the disciples, we think, were martyred apart from, apart from probably John, who died an old man in exile on Patmos. So we think. But notice the next thing that comes, the indignation. Look at the reaction of the rest of the disciples, the other ten. You've got James and John, the uh, Zebedee's sons and their mother. They've gone to Jesus. When we get to verse 24, there's indignation. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, let, let me ask you why you think they were indignant. Who thinks it was kind of a bit like this? Oh, how could James and John 
so misunderstand the Lord. How could they not understand that the Lord desires that we are servants? Or who thinks it was a bit more like this? I wanted that seat. Yeah? I'm absolutely convinced. I can't prove it from the scripture. If you've got a different view, that's fine. The Bible is not clear on that. But I honestly think that their indignation is that they wanted those seats. How, why do I think that? Because of the reaction, the teaching that Jesus brings. Immediately, this rabbi, fully human and fully God, he takes the chance to teach them, just as a rabbi would. Listen to verses 25 to 28. Jesus calls them together as soon as he sees this indignation. Guys, come on, come over here. He gets them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the Romans that are oppressing them, for instance, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, you know, dominating, oppressing, extracting taxes, all of that kind of stuff. The next four words out of Jesus' mouth are memorable and we should take it onto our hearts. I need to take it into mine. Not so with you. Not so with you. You know, the three main texts that we've read, this text in Matthew, Philippians chapter 2, and also the Jesus, uh, John's Gospel, Jesus washing feet, those are the three main scriptural texts in my doctoral thesis, which is about a paradigm, a style of leadership called transformational servant leadership. It, if you want, not the 90-odd thousand version, but the couple of sentences version, it's as a style and a paradigm of leadership exemplified in Jesus, which takes both service and being a servant and vision and being a passionate visionary and combines them together. Jesus is the white-hot visionary, not just the servant who washes feet. You put those things together, it's powerful. So sometimes I get people saying to me, just take a lead. And I'll go, I'm happy to lead but just not the way you want me to. Because we discern the will and the mind of God together. And the most effective leaders, they do this, they try and empower others by serving them. Do you agree? So Jesus gives them this teaching, not so with you. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He doesn't tell them, don't even want to be great, don't even desire to be great. And then he says, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. He doesn't say, don't ever desire to be first. He says elsewhere, the first will be last and the last will be first. But he's not challenging aspirations and ambitions in one sense. It's attitudes. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Alan, have you heard of a Scotsman called John Knox? Can you tell me of one of his prayers which was said to make the English Queen tremble? Stop there, that's brilliant. Does that sound a bit arrogant to anyone? He meant Scotland for the Lord. Give me Scotland or my life's not worth living. My whole life wants to see Scotland come under the power of the gospel and be changed. Do you know, if someone walks out of here tonight saying, give me Plymouth or I die, my job's <laughs> it's a good one. We need more men and women who will make a difference. We need more Mother Teresa's. We need more Martin Luther King's. We need more Nicky Gumbel's. 
We need, need more Billy Grahams. We need more people who will just roll up their sleeves and serve, not for fame, not for fortune, but who are passionately ambitious for the kingdom of God. Amen? Absolutely on fire for Jesus, wanting to make a difference. I don't want to embarrass my sister Teresa, who I've seen up close and personal working as the caretaker of this church. Trust me, she has a servant heart. Okay? You don't get many people who, in the first week of their job, say, excuse me, have we got any, any scrubbing brushes, Rob? Why? Uh, I just, there's a bit behind the toilets I can't get at. I want to make sure I scrub it clean. That's taking foot washing even further, isn't it? Toilet washing. But what she's told me, one of the things she wants to do recently is because she has known, if I may say this, Jesus setting her free of some things. She just wants to serve in a context where she can see Jesus set other people free of certain things. That's an ambition, isn't it? But it's a godly ambition, isn't it? So here's the application. How can we respond? How can you and I respond? Let's ask a couple of other questions. First of all, who do we serve? Who do we serve? Well, first and foremost, we, we serve God. Let me just try and make this clear again from the teaching of Jesus. Back in John's Gospel, and if you've got your Bible, you might want to look at some remarkable things that Jesus says in John chapter 5. Verses 19 to 20 and verse 30. If you want to know about motives and motivations and ambitions, listen to Jesus' ambitions and aspirations. Listen to his motivation, his motives. John 5, 19 to 20. They're trying to trap Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious right wing of the day, the people who are great at religion but don't have, according to Jesus, a true relationship with God. And they're trying to trap him about working on the Sabbath. Jesus gives them an answer, John 5, 19. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. In his full humanity, all that Jesus did, he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. He can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. Then we drop down in the same chapter to verse 30. Jesus says, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus' motive and Jesus' ambition was to do only what he saw the Father doing, only where the Father led, only his Father's will. Fully God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from before time as we understand it, God created time, he created everything else, everything that the Father created, he created through the Son. And here is Jesus in his full humanity, recognizing that his absolute desire his aspiration, his ambition was simply to do the Father's will. How about me? How about you? So how can we respond? Well, who do we serve? We serve God, our Father, through Jesus, as the Holy Spirit helps us. We serve others and we serve the church because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. 
We serve God, our Heavenly Father. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. And here's another one like it teaches Jesus, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And not just the neighbors that are easy to love either. And those are the people that we serve God. So you see, I I hope, please God, uh, and please tell me if if I get this wrong, that I am here, and so is Ross, we're here to serve this church, to serve God by serving you. But just in case you think that's a wimp out, with the greatest of love and respect, you're not my master. He is. Are you with me? I want to be the servant of all, but I have to obey my heavenly Father. And in a tough call, I've got to go that way with the revelation he gives me. That's the same for for you as it is for me. And how do we serve? Something easy to remember. Just put your hand on your heart. Put your hand on your heart. Wave your hands. Okay? And touch your lips. So hand on your heart. Wave your hands. And touch your lips. Because I think we serve God effectively And there's many ways that it could be described, but I'm going to describe it this way, with our hearts and our hands and our lips. We read in Matthew 20, 28 that Jesus says that he wants his disciples to serve just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It was in the heart of Jesus to serve his heavenly Father and to serve those he put in front of him, including the disciples whose feet he washed. So let me tell you that one of the greatest qualities for any Christian disciple is what I would call a servant heart. Have you ever heard that expression? A servant heart. If somebody's got a servant heart, it is a beautiful thing. So the first thing is, how do we serve? By developing a servant heart. That's a spiritual discipline of service. The more we do it, the more we lean into it, the more we practice it, the more we develop a servant heart. And then our hands... Jesus, in John 13, tells them, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's a doing in serving. And you might think that this last one, this last one, is an unusual one, but the lips. Just listen to some, a couple of final scriptures from James and from Ephesians. In the book of James, in the epistle written by the half-brother of Jesus, the apostle of the Jerusalem church, James, he warns people about the tongue. Is there anyone here that has ever been cut by a human tongue? It hurts. Oh, a few people willing to put their hand up. The human tongue can be sharper than any knife or any sword. It can cut you down, it can tear you apart, it can wound you, and you can carry those wounds for a long, long time. And James warns us that the tongue sometimes is very difficult to control. Listen to James 3, 5 to 18. Likewise, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also, listen to this language, is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. 
Wow, this is pretty strong stuff. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue, but the Holy Spirit of God can. The transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus living within you by His Spirit can. No man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. Who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It's pretty obvious that James thinks the tongue is a dangerous instrument. The Apostle Paul puts it in a slightly more positive way. I think you'll get the point just by hearing the scripture. Paul, writing to Christians in Ephesus, in Turkey as we now know it, says in chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 29, these things. Verse 15 of Ephesians 4. Instead, instead of being cunning and crafty and ungodly, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. If we speak to each other truthfully, we help each other to grow in Christ. But listen to the next verse in chapter 4 that I want to read, verse 29. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So remember, servant heart, remember serving with hands, including washing of feet, but serving with lips. Not flattery, that's not godly. Not buttering people up, but finding ways to encourage and build up, not tear down. Speaking well to people and well about people. And if they cross you or you feel hurt or wounded, go to them and face to face speak the truth, but speak it in love. We can serve people so effectively if we've got a servant heart with our hands but also with our lips and with our tongue. I'm done. And you're glad. And we're going to come to the communion table. So I'm going to ask um, Beth and our worship team to come back. But 